Politics Theory Other is brought to you by the show's supporters on Patreon and also by Verso Books, who publish lots of excellent left-wing titles, perfect for PTO listeners. Originally published in 1971, Marx's Literary Style by Ludovico Silva is a key work by one of the most important Latin American Marxists of the 20th century. Silva argues that much of the confusion around Marx's work results from a failure to understand his literary mode of expression. We cannot understand Marx if we treat him as a scientist, a philosopher or a literary writer when he was in fact all three at once. This new edition, published by Verso Books this month, marks the first appearance of one of Silva's works in English and features an introduction by Alberto Toscano. Marx's literary style by Ludovico Silva is out now from Verso Books and part of their January Verso Book Club reading. You are now listening to Macro Hello and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted by me, James Meadway, that brings you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. Each Wednesday morning, we bring you the key stories making the news and the analysis you need to make sense of them. In this week's episode, for a first story, we'll be looking at the World Economic Forum's annual gathering in Davos and asking whether it's really everything it's cracked up to be. Secondly, we'll take a look at the issues surrounding the US government debt ceiling and why it's such an unnecessary headache for all of us. For a third story, there's a new report out from the think tank Autonomy on an issue that is only going to get worse as climate change deepens. And finally, I'll finish with a tribute to post-Keynesian economist Victoria Chick, who died earlier this week. So the first story this week is the opening of the World Economic Forum's annual Jamboree in Davos in Switzerland, um, where the discussion is dominated by the polycrisis, uh, the increasingly fashionable idea popularised by the economic historian Adam Tooze, amongst others, but now taken up very widely, that what we have in the world today is not only an economic crisis, but a sort of hideous mutant combination of an economic crisis, a geopolitical crisis, and an ecological crisis, that in many different forms, all combining together to make something bigger and worse than the sum of its parts. Um, Trash Futures' recent interview with the LSE's Dominic Loister was a very helpful guide to the ways in which the concept gets used. For the World Economic Forum, it is, as we've seen in recent years, the occasion for a great deal of basically inconclusive hand-wringing. At some point after the financial crisis of 2008, it dawned on the Davos people that gathering the rich and the powerful together in a high-security luxury ski resort to pontificate about the state of the world and pat themselves on the back um, was becoming a little awkward. The optics, as they would say, uh, as the financial system collapsed, as inequality worsened, as mass unemployment beckoned, the optics were looking not great. And the World Economic Forum has tried to broaden its kind of social message ever since. Suddenly, inequality, skyrocketing, by the way, throughout the World Economic Forum's existence since the 1970s, was considered to be a real problem and much, you know, chin-stroking was had around and deep concern was expressed around the issue. As things have got progressively worse for pretty well everyone except those attending Davos meetings in the years since the crisis, this headline messaging on social concerns and inequality has become more prominent, most recently with a turn towards realising the environment was also something to look concerned about. Uh, People might remember Greta Thunberg's experience at Davos a couple of years back. Now, this year, there are some whispers out there that Davos isn't the jamboree it once was. Bloomberg notes this morning that, I quote, many of the world's most influential heads of state aren't here. The only group of seven leader present is Chancellor Olaf Scholz of Germany. 
The highest ranking figure from the Biden administration to attend is the Labour Secretary. China have sent over a vice premier. Vladimir Putin, you'll be astonished to hear, isn't in attendance at all. And likewise, Russian oligarchs are somewhat thin on the ground uh, this January. More generally, whilst these gatherings of some of the global elite get a lot of press attention, the actual ability of Davos to make any decisions or influence anything much is questionable, and it always has been. There's a certain amount of mood music. Uh, A lot of people out there have got very excited over the World Economic Forum's talk in the few years since the pandemic of a global reset in the wake of COVID. And if you want to go and find out how traffic calming measures in Oxford are all part of a grand plot by the World Economic Forum, there's a corner of the internet for you to do that in. But there's a fundamental confusion here about how capitalism operates. It doesn't need shadowy gatherings of the self-appointed elite to plot what happens. The opposite, it relies on competition amongst different capitalists to function. This is its very structure of the system is built around that kind of competition. This competition can be somewhat organised and structured. There are rules on how the global economy functions, broadly speaking. If you take the World Trade Organization rules and how countries are supposed to relate to each other through trade and through subsidies, that's one version of it. But it doesn't have to be structured like that with particular rules. Capitalist firms, especially big multinationals, are significantly free to compete as they wish in the markets they wish to compete in, um, typically and increasingly, I would say, in alliance with their local state, the big US capitalist firm will go to the US government for support and assistance, for example. So when the European Union announced this morning that it would be looking to loosen its strict rules on government aid uh, to renewables and other sort of clean technologies as part of a drive to push through what it calls a a decarbonisation, a green deal and this sort of thing, that move wasn't because the World Economic Forum has been banging on about climate change for the past few years. It was done by the European Union in response to the threat posed by the US in particular, which under the Inflation Reduction Act passed last year is set to pour billions of dollars of government assistance into clean technologies, into decarbonisation. So in other words, it's the threat of direct competition against European producers, against European capitalists that has motivated the European Union to then loosen its own rules on state aid and promote the idea that lots of government assistance is forthcoming. That's not some plotting behind the scenes. That's quite an open, obvious thing that happens as a result of competition. So it's all well and good for Davos and actually anybody else to talk about a polycrisis. But to address any of the issues that this involves, it's beyond the whims of a few people, no matter how rich or how powerful they may seem to be. What is needed is a deeper understanding of how capitalism works as a system. And I'm fairly sure we're not going to be getting that sort of analysis from anyone in Switzerland this week. Speaking of an inability to plan or organise, our next story is looking at the US, which is set to reach its self-imposed government debt limit on Thursday of this week, 19th of January. Um, The ceiling was last raised by uh, $2.5 trillion in December 2021 to a total of $31.4 trillion. Uh, As things stand, Janet Yellen, uh, the US Treasury Secretary, is warning that this will be breached on Thursday and that there will have to be put in place special measures to get the US through to June or so this year uh, in order to carry on financing basically government spending. 
Um, so there's bruises to get round a ceiling in the first instance, but it starts to create a real sort of crisis point, a political crisis point inside the US and starts to dominate uh, US politics. Now, the debt ceiling itself was introduced originally in the First World War, actually as a way to give greater flexibility to the federal government at the time to borrow in order to meet the demands of that war. Otherwise, Congress has to sort of say that every bit of borrowing that happens has to be approved by Congress. With the ceiling in place, there's a certain sort of limit that the federal uh, government can can start to borrow up to. What's happened in practice is it's become a kind of perennial source of weird negotiations about exactly how much money should the US government uh, have on its books as borrowing in total. And that's every so often when there's a kind of tight political set of arguments in the US, as we've seen in recent years, it becomes a focal point. It becomes a focus for people who are concerned in particular about US government spending or a negotiation point to try and win something from the federal government some concessions in one way or another, uh, using the threat of breaching the debt limit uh, as a way to sort of extort uh, money from the government or tax cuts from the government or whatever the particular set of concerns happen to be. It came closest to an actual breach in recent years, in 2011, when uh, the Tea Party Republicans, as they were, the kind of hardliners on uh, taxation, on spending, the real sort of headbangers inside the Republican Party at the time, threatened to push the US debt uh, into default by saying that the debt limit would be breached and therefore the government couldn't borrow any more money. Now, if that happens, the US would be in what is called default, as we talked about last uh, week. This is when a government, a sovereign default, is when a government says at least some or all part of its borrowing and its payments it's due to make to its creditors, it can't in fact reach. Now, there's lots of reasons why a country would be borrowing money and continually uh, borrowing money. Good reasons in practice, including the US. Developed countries in general, I mean, with rare exceptions, habitually run a deficit on their government spending. They, they kind of habitually spend more than they get in taxes. It's perfectly reasonable to do this to, to some extent, that if you're continually spending more than you take in taxes, if you're the government, you're continually putting at least a bit, little bit more money into the economy. You're kind of greasing the wheels a bit. You're keeping things ticking over. You're making sure that there's a certain amount of economic activity taking place. Your taxes suck money out of the economy if you levy them. Government spending puts money back in. So you can kind of keep the thing ticking over. And as long as the economy is growing faster in money terms than the interest rate on the debt that you're adding to, you can kind of continue this situation on indefinitely. There's no real reason for you to worry about how big that debt actually is or what you're doing with it, as long as you have that growth in money terms being more than the amount you have to pay on the debt. That typically applies to developed economies over the last sort of 40, 50, 60 years or so. Now, for the US, the economic constraint and what it can do with borrowing is even weaker. The, since the US issues the dollar, and since the dollar is still used in actually well over 80% of trade around the world, there's a huge demand for the dollar around the world, which in turn means that the US Federal Reserve, the central bank of the US, which issues that currency, uh, can ultimately always redeem any government borrowing by the US government simply by issuing more dollars, that it doesn't have to worry quite as much as smaller, less powerful countries not having the dollar might be concerned about what would happen to the international value of their currency if they issue loads of it. We've seen this with the pound. The value of the pound has fallen over the last year, more so than other developed uh, countries' uh, currencies, because of sort of concerns that have blown up, particularly if you remember around the mini-budget, with the amount of borrowing that was taking place and the amount of issuance of pounds that this implied by the Bank of England and, and by the UK government. 
So without those sort of worries, the US government has far more flexibility, far more freedom to borrow as it wishes. And frankly, US government since the 80s, since Ronald Reagan, particularly and perhaps ironically, Republican governments have been very, very happy to exploit what has elsewhere been called the exorbitant privilege of having the dollar, knowing that the rest of the world needs dollars and therefore being able to just borrow to an extraordinary extent in a way that other countries simply uh, simply can't manage. All of this depends on the dollar, on the US's political and ultimately even its military might. That's the linchpin of the system here. So there's no real need for the US to worry about its debt. The debt ceiling is, is a completely artificial barrier. It's driven by US domestic politics rather than real economic constraints. But since the US and especially US government debt is so central to global finance in general, a default by the US or even the threat of default would have enormous global implications, almost certainly sparking a round of major financial crises around the world as, as panic from this sort of shock spread. It would be uh, a major event to say the least. But with US domestic politics so finely balanced and with a group now of Republican lawmakers so clearly committed to pursuing their agenda and happy to disrupt proceedings to a very substantial extent, as we've seen in recent weeks, the chances of default by the US government on its debt today now have to be reckoned quite high, probably the highest since 2011. Most likely, as happened in the end in 2011, the raw power of US and global financial interests will prevail over these hardliners. That in practice, when the financial markets start to panic, when uh, the US's credit rating gets downgraded, you find that a bunch of people who say they don't care about any of these things, they're going to push for default, they want to win what they can from the government, they blink first. This is what happened in 2011. Most likely, the same kind of pressures will be operating today. But it's a graphic example of a fairly serious political dysfunction sitting in the middle of the world's largest economy. And our third story this week, I wanted to look at the work of a, a new think tank, Autonomy, um, set up in the, the first flush of Corbynism uh, back in 2017, but now I think moved significantly beyond an attachment to, to the Jeremy Corbyn project and doing some really interesting work on, well, work itself, uh, a real specialism they've developed in thinking differently about how we work and how long we work for uh, and where we work and what kind of content might be in the work that we're doing. Useful stuff, especially in a world where, as we've seen in the last few years, the way we all think about work and where we work and how we work and who we work with and what we work for has been thrown into such question, uh, particularly by COVID-19 and, and the, the shock that this has produced for all of us. They had some very good research out last week picking up on an issue that I think is going to get increasingly important over the next few years, depressingly increasingly important over the next few years, uh, which is what do we do about the fact that climate change is real, it's happening, and it's not something that's affecting only countries a long way away that we can all pretend uh, isn't really there if you're sitting in Britain. But actually, it's something that's starting to bite here. And Autonomy's research shows that, well, first, the UK doesn't have a statutory maximum working temperature. There's no actual limit to the temperature that you could be expected to work in if you are in the United Kingdom. Now, to be absolutely honest with you, for, for most of our history here, this is a sort of cold, damp island and this doesn't really kick in. But what we're starting to see and what we certainly saw last summer was that temperatures 
average temperatures for any given month are starting to creep upwards to really unheard of levels, 40 degrees and that sort of thing as we saw in summer last year and that this has a serious impact on the ability of people to work in any way and in any conditions that might be considered humane. So using data from the Met Office and using data on the kinds of jobs people do and an understanding of what sort of jobs might be most exposed to extreme heat. So if you're outdoors a lot, for example, or if you're doing particularly strenuous sort of physical activities, you can start to work out how many people are going to be seriously exposed to the forecast temperature increases, average temperature increases over the next few years. Now, the figure they get to is that almost 28 million workers will be unprotected from dangerous temperatures with no statutory limit saying if the temperature is over, well, pick a number, you know, 28 degrees, 26 degrees, whatever it might be. With no limit on when you are expected to work, people are going to be dangerously exposed to these dangerously high temperatures that are starting to appear and will worsen over the next few years. And there's some parts of the country that are particularly bad in terms of the forecast temperature increase and the kinds of work people do there. They pick out Birmingham, for example, and Doncaster and a few other, actually some of them quite unexpected places, as amongst the ones that are most likely to be worst affected over the next decade or so. So autonomy following recommendations from the Trade Union Congress suggests that we should introduce uh, a statutory maximum temperature for safe working in the UK. Um, they say 27 degrees for, for strenuous work and 30 degrees for indoor work. Uh, and they also suggest that there has to be an expansion over a longer period of time of a retrofitting programme to get our housing stock, our office buildings, I mean, basically how we spend all our lives, to take those buildings and put them into a place where they're much better adapted to the kind of temperatures uh, that we're starting to see in summer and of course on the other side the kind of temperatures you're starting to see in the winter. So the reason this work I think is this research is so important is that we all start to really have to get our heads around what climate change and what this environmental decay really means for all of us. It's been held off as something that's going to happen in the future. This is often for the last sort of few decades. Climate change is going to happen if we don't immediately act now. We've only got five years, 10 years, however long it is to save the planet. Well, unfortunately, it's here now. It's changing every aspect of our lives. And unless we can start to get on top of a fair adaptation to a world that has now changed, one that protects people, one that acts in the interests of social justice. That means people still have a fair stake in the world that isn't just exposing at least some people to the very worst of this. We're going to live in a much, much worse society as a result. Finally, I was very sad to hear of the death earlier this week of Victoria Chick, uh, Emeritus Professor of Economics at University College London. Vicky was a crucial figure in the development of monetary economics over the last few decades uh, and a pillar of radical economic thinking, uh, standing against the mainstream for, for years, making fundamental contributions to what became known as post-Keynesian economic theory. She was also personally very funny and had a no-bullshit attitude, which I guess was essential when dealing with the ingrained sexism of the profession. It's telling that only one woman has ever won the so-called Economics Nobel Prize, and elsewhere Anne Pettifor has argued the case that in a fairer world, Vicky was a plausible contender for the award. But she was far too dangerously radical and critical for the Swedish Central Bank Committee that decides these things. Her central book, her magnum opus, Macroeconomics After Keynes, remains a crucial restatement of the idea that the Keynesian revolution of the 1930s and onwards was a challenge to how economics is researched, as a challenge to authority, rather than a reassurance to that authority. And as Vicky herself said, the economics mainstream is the hallmarks of certain religions. They think they have the truth, but read for yourself and think for yourself. Change has occurred before and it can occur again. 
Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose.